Hello, everybody. My name is Joe, and I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm glad to see everybody could come and watch John Chair tonight. And uh, thank you for the introduction, cardboard breath. Uh, Bruce, I, I really admired you getting up here three days of sobriety to come up and get a book. But uh, it probably didn't ever occur to you a year ago that you would walk into a room full of people like this and be applauded for being a total failure at living. Uh, you're, you're welcome anyway. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't want to come off as snide. But... Uh, I've had a really weird week, uh, and I just want to warn you, I took a laxative this morning, and uh, it reminds me of old drinking days. You go right through a screen door, but uh, if I'm talking and all of a sudden I stop and I leave, it's not because I'm scared or I've had a spiritual experience. I've just got to let go and let God, if you understand what I'm saying. So... <laughs> I don't sound bad for 102 fever. I feel peaked tonight. Uh, been a little sick the last couple of days. I've uh, been up the last couple of days with my boy, but it's been more fun than it has been sick. Um, earlier, when uh, in the past week or so, when John asked me to speak, I was really flattered because after I hung up, I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, these people have heard me so many times. And I called my sponsor. I said, I said what do they want to hear me for? I said, they're probably getting tired of hearing me. I'm getting tired of hearing me. Uh, and he says, uh, you've seen me forget one important point. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, who are you talking for? He said, are you going out there for them or you're going up there to ensure your sobriety? And I thought, wow, I just forgot that. I totally forgot that. And uh, I'm glad I got a good sponsor because if I wouldn't have had a good sponsor, I probably would have never heard that. And I needed to hear that. I'm up here tonight to ensure my sobriety. And uh, I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I should stay home. You know, I got a fever and diarrhea, and uh, now I got diarrhea. Uh, but my sponsor always told me, if you can get up and go to the bathroom, you can go to a meeting. So, so I'm here. That's a true story. <laughs> no pun intended. That's true. Um, I'm really glad to be here tonight because... Uh, I was thinking to myself the other day, you know, I sponsor a lot of people. I don't know how many people I sponsor, but it's really a damn shame. Because I know so many people that have come into Alcoholics Anonymous and things got better for them. And all of a sudden you don't see them anymore. You know, here's a guy that's got a business and uh, he's gone for a while. And you call him up and say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. He says, well, you know, um, thanks for the information. I'm back on my feet. I got a little bit of self-knowledge now. And my business is taking up a lot of my time. Or you run across a man or a woman that has a family and they say, well, my family's taking up a lot of my time now. I can't come to A anymore. I'm, I'm needed at home. And a little while later, you hear so-and-so bit the dust because their family was more important than a 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous or their business was more important than the uh, 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and thank God I have a sponsor that's continually reminding me that the most important thing in my life is that I'm an alcoholic. And the second most important thing is I've got a way to live now. It's a 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I was thinking to myself on the way up here, uh, I really don't have anything new to say. You know, these guys are taping me. This stuff is old hat to me. You know, uh, 
I thought to myself on the way up here, I thought, well, should I say something different? And I thought, well, whatever I say is okay. You know, that was another thing I forgot. You can't say anything wrong given a lead. And when I remember that, I don't seem to be as nervous as I am before I get up here and start talking. Uh, It never occurred to me uh, over seven and a half years ago that I would be standing in front of this many people totally exposing myself and making an asshole of me. It, it never crossed my mind. You know, the thing I was concerned with was getting the next drink. Where was I going to get the money to get the next shot for the needle? And where was I going to get the next pill or the next bag? Now, that's what was going through my mind. Um, and in my mind, I always had the punchline to all of life's problems before I heard the answer. It's like, uh, I don't know how many people have heard this, but it typifies my way of looking at life. There was a 96-year-old genius who had never gotten married and never had any kids. And it, it dawned on him one day, he said, my God, I'm 96 years old. I won't be able to pass these genes on to anybody. So he goes down to the local sperm bank. He says, I want to pass these genes on so this mind of mine can be used in the future. So the lady down there gives him a little glass jar with the lid on it, and he goes in the bathroom, and he's in there for about two hours, and she's getting kind of worried. You know, he's 96 years old. And she knocks on the door, and she says, uh, are you okay? And he comes out, and the lid's still on the jar. And she said, what's wrong? He said, I tried it with the left hand for a while, didn't work. Tried it with the right hand for a while, didn't work. Ran a little cold water on it, ran a little hot water on it. And I'll be damned if I get the lid off that jar. See? But I know what you were thinking, you see. And that's the way I think. I always had the punchline before I heard the answer. I always had everything one step ahead. And I sponsor a guy, he calls me a sponsor, that said he read a report when he was in like third grade and says, uh, Mark always has answers to questions that haven't been asked yet. And that was me. My whole life I had the punchline to things that I thought were reality. My mind always looked at things... Never the way they really were. I had a sick mind. You know, I'd see people going to work in their cars, and I'd think, that's what you're supposed to do. So I'd, I'd get up and ride with the traffic in my car. I might not have been going to a job, but I was out there doing what everybody else was doing. <laughs> I had the punchline, didn't I? Uh, I, I remember uh, sitting there at 5.30 in the morning and... and I was getting ready to get on the expressway, and there's a bunch of people at the stoplight, and I'm sitting there drinking a quart and smoking a joint. And I'm going to work. You know, but the reason I'm going to work is to get more to drink and more to smoke. They're going to work because they have house payments. They want to buy cars. They want to buy clothes. They like eating. Eating wasn't too important to me. Clothes weren't important to me. Cars and homes weren't important to me at the end. They knew what the punchline was. I, my whole life, I only thought I knew what the punchline was. I remember as a kid, I'd see two people walking down the street. They'd be holding hands, a guy and a girl. And my mind thought, that's love. And it never occurred to me that was just two people walking down the street holding hands. (laughs) Damnedest thing. I never knew that until I got sober. So I thought to myself, I'm going to get some of that. So I got me some love. So when I walked down the street, when those people saw me, they would think that I was in love because I thought I was in love. You see... I didn't have, I had the punchline before I had the answers. My whole life was like that until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And there was one underlying theme through my whole life before I come to A and after I came to A and every once in a while now. Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? 
Is this really where I'm supposed to be? And if it is, what would people think of me? You know, what would people think of me? I remember when I was out there floundering around trying to be successful, but working at being a total failure at living. Uh, I was always worried about what other people were thinking of me. I would get out there and rush out of traffic with no job to go to just so I would make them think that I was out there going with them to work. You know, and I, I remember going to the bank. I was I went to the bank. I was I was spray painting at a, at a refrigeration company. and I was spray painting these big panels. And at the time, my hair was out to here. I had a beard like this and I had six inch wide masking tape across the beard to keep it from getting paint on it. And I was all white. And uh, I would come in there uh, a little bit high, a little bit drunk. And I remember one day I uh, threatened to kill the personnel manager and the assistant plant manager all within about five minutes. And then had the audacity to ask them to give me my check. And I went to the bank and I remember standing in the, in, the, in the bank and I did this week after week after week. I was guilty standing in that line. I had the punchline. And they had the answer. These fellows had a bank account that they had had 20 years ago. And I'm opening up new ones and closing them every other week. And the only reason I'm going back is because when I went to the window, they would say, Mr. Annis Hansel, would you like to open another account? They called me Mr. It had been so long since anybody had called me Mr. And I couldn't figure out, how do these guys keep this money in the bank? How do they do it? I'm putting in 20, taking out 20, putting in 80, taking out 40, and next day it's empty. You know, what the, what the hell is it with me? I'm doing everything they're doing, but I'm not coming up with the total that they have. I got the punchline, but I don't have the answer. Uh, my whole life has been based on an illusion. A lot of times uh, I've been referred to as an arrested two-year-old. Emotionally, spiritually, mentally. Uh, physically, I grew. But when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was an arrested two-year-old in a 22-year-old's body. Now, that's scary as hell. That's all I had. That's all I had. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know how far off base I was. Because everything I did at the time seemed pretty normal to me. It seemed real normal. As a kid, we used to ride a bus a lot because my dad was the only one with a car and uh, my mom didn't drive, so we rode the bus all the time. And uh, I remember starting to get into drugs. I guess I was about 13 or 14 years old. My brother's about three years younger than me. And we'd buy some hallucinogens and some mescaline and we'd snort it and we'd go downtown and ride the bus and hallucinate through the city and, and go on the, get on the elevator and go up the Empire State Building and on the 50th floor and observe and uh, I remember distinctly my brother looking over the edge and me looking over the edge. And he said, man, wouldn't it be nice just to jump off the top of this building? And I said, yeah, but if we did, when we got home, Dad would kick our ass. <laughs> and I meant it. I really meant that. That's how in touch with reality I was then. And I like telling that because it just typifies the way I looked at life. And I usually tell another story about a fellow on a riverbank because it typifies the way I actually came face to face with my own insanity. And it's about a fellow that was on a riverbank and this fellow was going to commit suicide. And he was down on the Ohio River and he uh, ripped off a piece of this old brown bag and he says, Dear Dad. I really want to tell you I'm sorry. I really I, I meant to be the best son I could, but I didn't know any any better. I, I, I wish I could have done better at being your son. 
And he looked at the bag that he tore the paper off of, and there was a pint of wild Irish rose with the seal still on it. And he cracks it, and he takes a snort, and he puts it back down. And he says, uh, tell my brother that I really wish I could have been a better big brother than I was. And he sees the bottle. And the pain's becoming greater as he, become, as he comes face-to-face with this suicide note. And he takes another drink, and he puts it down. And he goes on to say, tell my mother I didn't mean to call her a whore at 3 o'clock in the morning or put my fist through her windows or rip doors off of hinges or knock lamps off of tables and make an ass of myself. And looked down at that bottle and took another drink. I said, oh, yeah, tell that girlfriend that I used to have that I didn't mean to beat her the way I beat her. I didn't mean to grab her the way I grabbed her. I did, that's the only thing I knew how to do. And he takes another drink and empties the bottle. And all of a sudden he gets that warm glow all over. And all that stuff, all that depression, all that anxiety just kind of goes away. And he says, P.S. Dad, if you ever need my help, just give me a call. <laughs> that's what alcohol did for me. That's exactly what it did for me. My life wasn't a bowl of cherries before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, nor was a bowl of cherries after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. My whole perception on living was shot. I had no game plan to live by. The only thing I knew was drink to oblivion, use drugs to oblivion. That was it. Whatever happened after that happened after that. You know, my game plan was is I was going to shut everything off from 13 and wake up mature at 21. And I woke up at 21, 22, and I wasn't mature. Uh, I was on Skid Row, and uh, Skid Row's, I don't know if you would call it immature, but it's awful sickening uh, because it's a way of living. And that's the way I was living. I had had a pretty good childhood. Uh, The only thing about it was it was extremely long. It lasted from two till I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the A's been a real growing experience for me, and it still is. But I had a pretty prosperous childhood. I had all the wrong motives, but I had a lot of fun. Uh, my mother's an alcoholic. She's been sober, uh, I think, 13 and a half years, something like that. And I remember we, uh, we used to do things as a family for a short while before alcoholism reared its ugly head and started taking control over our family. And I, I'm really convinced that alcoholism is a family illness. Because the only thing we could do at the end with us all being sick was blame each other for the way things were going wrong. That's the only thing we knew how to do. And then we'd all go our own ways and live our own lives, no matter how sick it was. But I remember my mom. Uh, my mother's a damn good example of it's not how much you drink, but it's what it does to you. My mother only drank two quarts of beer a night. She used to love to eat black mollies. Uh, my mother would tell you she's a speed freak. And I remember coming home and I was 13, 14 years old and I'm doing LSD and I'm watching my mom take different shapes and I'm sitting there having a decent conversation with her. She's a little bit tipsy. And uh, I tell you, what really blew me away is when my mother said she was an alcoholic and she was going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember I was downstairs. I was taking a shower with my brother in the basement. and I could hear it through the register. Joe, I'm going to Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, what? You're not an alcoholic. You're just crazy. <laughs> I remember that. And from that point on, everything went downhill in our house. Because one person was getting sober, the other one was getting sicker, I was getting sicker, my brother was getting sicker. And I remember thinking to myself, yeah, Dad is right, she is crazy. 
She only drinks two quarts of beer a night. So what? She puts one down the vegetable bin and one under the sink. What's wrong with that? You know, it never occurred to me that social drinkers put them both on the shelf in the refrigerator to keep them cool when they want to drink them. But my mother did the same crazy things almost that I did. And she only drank two quarts a night. And here I am drinking two fifths of Windsor in a night and eating 20 black mollies on a Friday night so I could stay up to drink the two fifths of Windsor to stay up till Monday morning. Um, I remember those people when they started coming down to take my mother away to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> See, my dad was a good con. Don't get me wrong. I love my dad dearly. We're just now starting to become friends. But at that time, in my mind, Dad never lied. Dad was incapable of lying. Mom was nuts. See, he had me totally convinced that if it wasn't for me and my brother, he would have been long gone, that my mother's nuts. So from that point on, I blame my mother for every problem our family ever had and every problem I ever had, even after I left her house, after she kicked me out. And I remember those people coming out and taking my mother away to those Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and those dishes were stacked up to the ceiling. And I think, you care more about these goddamn strangers than you do your own family. And what I didn't understand was, is her sobriety and her sanity was more important than a sink full of dishes. But at that time, I thought she was really trying to hurt us. That you're just doing this to get even for how screwed up you've made things. And my mother continued to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I continued to hate her more and more the sicker I got. I was about 17 years old. I had left home 16, 17 years old three different times, hitchhiking to Florida, trying to find Nirvana, trying to find that peace of mind. And every time I would stay out there, I'd, I'd get lonely. I'd come home. So I, was just, I was an arrested two-year-old at that time in a 17-year-old's body. And I was coming back to mom. I hated her guts. Where else do you go when you don't know how to function? You don't have a job, and you're not as mad as you were two weeks ago. You know what I mean? Well, so she grounded me for a month. I'll go back, you know. Uh, so my dad don't like my hair out to here, you know. Uh, I'm awful goddamn hungry. I'm going home. And at that time, uh, I had gotten in trouble with the law. The police were after me. Uh, I had truancy charges against me in school. I finished the 10th grade. I was in the 11th grade. I quit. Uh, typical alcoholic, quit, you know, things aren't going your way, screw you, I quit. And uh, I proceeded to go into the Navy. And I knew this would please my father because my father was in a German concentration camp in World War II. And when he got out of there, he'd taken a test and he got an appointment to West Point. But he, he never took it. He, uh, he said, that's enough for the concentration camps, I don't want no more. So he never went back. So I knew I could bribe my father into signing me into the Navy. I knew I could do that. So I went into the Navy. I stayed in there a year and a half. I played a game to get out of the Navy with flat feet. I, I didn't tell them I ran 10 miles a day at track before I come into the Navy. Five in the morning, five at night, trying to work that alcoholism out and please my parents. I couldn't stand it. After a while, I realized that smoking dope and drinking whiskey made me feel better than running 10 miles every day. But what really scared me was is when I was in the Philippines and I was 17 years old and I suddenly realized I could no longer hitchhike home. That, oh, shit. I'm too far away. And that's when my mind started working. And a fellow told me, there's no way to get out. And my mind said, watch me. <laughs> and the first thing I did to try to get out was I pretended as if though I was a sleepwalker. I remember the first time out at sea on the ship, 
I in- intentionally left my barracks, or the, the berth, <laughs> and went up to a chair at the top of the berth and sat there with one eye open waiting for somebody to come by so they would catch me up there thinking I was sleepwalking. And a guy told me to get the hell out of the chair and go back to bed. So uh, when this guy told me there's no way to get out, this arrogance in me said, watch me. And I started going through this Bupers manual of all these rules and regulations to see how I could manipulate it to get the hell out. And I said, flat feet. I got some weird looking feet. I can run like a goose, but my feet look weird. And then six months later, I was out. And I remember walking out from the gates of Long Beach Naval Station, flipping the Marine guard, the bird, and daring him to do anything because I knew he couldn't. And I thought to myself, I'm going to go home and straighten my family out because about that time, uh, about that time, my mother and father had gotten divorced. And I said, oh, my poor brother. Uh, And I went home and uh, I tell you what, when I got home, I had a lot of good intentions. I thought to myself, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get me a job and I'm going to help my mother because my mother was working behind the the bar at Oak Street, and that don't pay anything. Peanuts, minimum wage. And uh, I thought I told my mom, I said, Mom, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get a job and I'm going to help out around the house. And I'd use her car. She rode the bus to Oak Street so I could use her car. I still hated her, right? And I'd meet a guy at 8 o'clock in the morning. He'd be walking down the street and we'd go get a bottle of wine and something to drink. And the next thing I knew, it was two o'clock in the morning the next day. And I'd go home. And my mother would say, did you get a job? I'd say, oh, shit, I forgot all about that. <laughs> now, that didn't bother me the first time because I figured it was just a slip of the mind. But when it continued to happen, I started to experience guilt that I have never, ever experienced in my life. Even during my drinking, I experienced that guilt. And it wasn't until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that somebody pointed out to me the doctor's opinion of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the doctor's opinion talks about the spiritual, mental, and physical aspect of the disease of alcoholism. And I I want to read a part out of here because it helped me so much when I really came to believe what this doctor was saying. I thought, I thought if I just didn't drink, I tried this before I got to A, I thought if I just didn't drink, I'd get my act together. And this doctor says, I I do not hold with those people who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests. So the important appointment was not met. This helped me with the guilt. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Jesus Christ. How many times did I say, I got this pressure, I've got these problems, and that's why I drink? You know, if your mother was nuts and going to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you didn't have a job and was broke, you would drink too. That's what my mind thought. And this says... We didn't drink to escape the pressure. We drank, drank to escape, a, uh, to overcome a physical craving that we had no control over. That helped me with a lot of guilt because I had a lot of good intentions. I could just never meet up to them. 
About that time, like I said earlier, with this fellow sitting on the riverbank, that was my story because I was coming home at three and four o'clock in the morning doing real sociable things like calling my own mother a whore. Now, you might not like to hear it, but God damn it, it's the truth. That's what I did. I'd get mad. I'd put my fist through walls and tear doors off of hinges and knock lamps off of tables. And I remember sitting there in a living room at three thirty in the morning, just drunk and saying, what the hell is wrong with me? At this time, I'm 22 years old. And I'm, I'm rambling all this stuff off. There's nobody there except me. And I'm saying, what's wrong with me? Other, other guys I know that are 22 years old, they have homes, they've got families, they've got jobs. I don't have nothing. What's wrong with me? It never occurred to me that it was my drinking. Not even once, because after I got done crying and feeling sorry for myself, I went back out to the car to get the bottle. So I could pass out and go to sleep. That was my solution to living. That was my game plan. And to take that away from me was cruel. I believe that the worst advice that anybody can give an alcoholic is to tell them, don't drink. My God, that left me like a walking raw nerve. People would say things to me and shoot right down my back. They'd say, hi, how are you doing? I thought... You don't really want to know, you know, how's your day? Bug off, man. Just go get, get out of here. Just get away from me. So I, th I think it's bad policy to tell an alcoholic not to drink unless you're going to give them something else to go by. Unless you can give them some kind of game plan, that's going to give them relief so they don't walk around feeling like a raw nerve all the time. And that's what I was when I wasn't drinking. I was a raw nerve. Just like that, I don't know how I many of you had raw nerves on your teeth, but man, there's nothing you could do to get away from it. And that's how I felt. My whole body felt like a raw nerve. Now, I tried not drinking before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Me and another buddy said, let's not drink until Friday. And it was Monday. We were going to go to a concert and said, man, when we really get down there, we'll really get buzzed up. You know, we figured by not doing it for a while, you'd flush your system out. And, you know, we had all these uh, intricate plans on how to rearrange our physical makeup in order to get a better buzz. So, but that only lasted two days and I was drunk again. And I remember at three o'clock in the morning saying, I thought we said we weren't going to get drunk till Friday. And he said, yeah, well, I wouldn't worry about it. And then I tried it by myself and I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So I knew the answer to not getting drunk was not drinking. But I found out before I came to Alcoholics Anonymous that not drinking is not the key to sobriety. And I hear many, many people in Alcoholics Anonymous, and they mean well. God damn, it's, uh, uh, it's all well and good. Uh, but I hear so many people say, all you have to do is just don't drink a day at a time and go to meetings. And they walk around bonkers. You know, how are you today? I'm miserable. You know? And somebody over here say, I got a job. And the guy will say, so what? <laughs> you know, what did you do last night? Well, I didn't drink. I went to a meeting. You know, still a raw nerve, except they're an Alcoholics Anonymous, a raw nerve. And the only reason I'm bringing this up is because two people I know are dead as a result of untreated alcoholism. One man was sober nine months. He grew up in North College Hill where I did. He was coming to meetings. He didn't get a sponsor. He didn't read the big book. He had not gone through the steps. He hadn't, hadn't attempted to write an inventory. 
And all he was doing was just not drinking a day at a time. And he blew his brains out sober. And that's what I'm trying to say. I can't walk around a, a raw nerve. I'll eventually drink again because I have no choice if I have no game plan with the 12 steps. I have no game plan whatsoever without those 12 steps. I become a raw nerve again. Everything hurts and I drink. And the destiny of any alcoholic I've ever met, other than the ones who come to Alcoholics Anonymous, is to die drunk, go insane, or end up in prison. And I go out to Longview every Monday night, and I look at untreated alcoholism, and it just blows me away, because the only difference between me and those people is 12 steps on a piece of paper. That just blows me away. You know, when a guy's sitting over there having an argument with a chair and loses the argument... <laughs> I would say that man's walking around a raw nerve. Just like this all the time. You know, it's... And I see it week after week. Uh, but anyway, I can't stress that enough. I, I need to hear that so much. This A thing is more than just not drinking a day at a time. And if you don't believe me, read the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, because on page 19, Bill Wilson writes that we feel the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. That a greater demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. Uh, and just not drinking uh, is really not a principle. I would say that's suffering. And if you want to demonstrate suffering in your home, occupations, and affairs, just don't drink. Um, but the first time I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, it had just been a few months after my mother kicked me out. Because she told me when she was six years sober, she said, I cannot, I can't stay sober like this anymore. I don't want to stay sober like this anymore. Get the hell out. And I said, well, can you give me a week to find a place? And she says, no, get out tomorrow. So I put all my belongings in three hefty trash can liners and <laughs> threw them in my yellow canary Chevy pickup truck. And I headed for uh, No Hope, Kentucky, down in Covington. On 15th and Scott, a man I work with is generous enough to point me out to a sleeping room that stank like camel dung, and I took it. <laughs> Where else do you go when you don't have any money and you're mad at somebody? You don't want to admit you're wrong or you can't function on the street, and you're damn sure not going to tell them. So I proceeded to live at this place of 15th and Scott, and I like to describe it for my own memory. And the only reason I do that is because I know today that if I went back out and drank again, it wouldn't be that bad. It'd be worse. It would be worse. This room was all green. The, the walls were green. The ceiling was green. The floor was green. And the floor was one big piece of rolled out linoleum. And all the ends on it were turned up. <laughs> right? <clears throat> the walls had holes in them where the plaster had been knocked out, where I knocked them out, or where it had fallen out. There were cobwebs in the corner. There was an empty refrigerator. There was a broken pane in the front window, plastic curtains on the windows, and they had grease on them. Uh, and I remember coming home at night drunk and opening the door to that room and flipping the light on and watching all these roaches scatter. And, I mean, and this is no exaggeration. Man, there was one every square foot. And when the lights come on, they all disappeared. I, I could never figure out where they went. I... I'd open the refrigerator, you know, it was just kind of habit. When you're growing up as a kid, you come home, you're hungry, the first thing you do is you go for the refrigerator. And I went for the refrigerator, it was empty, but it was full of roaches. I could never figure out what they were doing in there. There was nothing in there. And I'd lay down on the mattress that I had on this bed that had no sheets, no cover, no pillow, and I'd lay down drunk, and i think, 
God damn, I got it made. Nobody to complain about my drinking. No more. I'll show you. I'll get even with me. I'll kill me. And that's exactly what I was doing. And there were times I thought to myself about my mother. I would think, baby, if I can't live there, you're not going to live there either. And I plotted many, many nights to burn that woman's house down. But I couldn't get over the guilt of seeing her going up in flames. I, I, no matter how drunk I got, I could not bring myself to do that. And I've contemplated hour upon hour upon hour how to do it. And it just never came about. There was one night back in 76 when it was real cold. It was like 25 below and the wind chill factor was 70 below over the bridge that night. And I had hitchhiked up to North College Hill to con some of my old so-called buddies out of a drink and something to get high on. And it became 2.30 in the morning. The bar closed. I don't remember going from North College Hill to College Hill, but I remember coming to in College Hill. And then I remember coming to downtown at the Dixie Terminal Building and walking from the Dixie Terminal Building over the bridge. And the river was frozen up to 15th and Scott. And it was so cold out that night. Wind chill, 70 below. And what I had on was a pea coat, a shirt, bib coveralls, no hat, no gloves, and shoes. You know, I was prepared. I was ready. <laughs> I didn't feel anything. But I remember this. There was nobody out that night. It was so cold, dogs were frozen to fire hydrants in this position. <laughs> I remember seeing a police car frozen to the curb. And I, in my drunken stupor, I thought, well, the citizens are getting their money's worth. <laughs> and kept on walking. Nobody out. You know, nobody in the right mind. And if you could have stopped me over that bridge that night and said, Joe, do you think you have a drinking problem? I'd say, hell no, I've got a transportation problem. It's freezing out here. <laughs> that would have been my honest answer. Bad luck. Nobody would drive me home from the bar. In April of 1977... I remember going horseback riding with a couple other fellows, and we were drinking wine and doing mescaline. And uh, I had a spiritual experience that morning. And I guess the theme of my talk tonight, the thing I have to hear is, I can't be picky where I receive my help from. Because this began a series of bizarre incidents that had improved my life immensely. Because that spring morning... It was closer to go to my mother's house than it was back to Covington. I didn't want to go back to that, that room that just smelled like human waste because that's what it was. I couldn't control myself no more. I didn't want to clean nothing. It took too much time away from my drinking. I just go there and pass out. But I went to her house that morning. I went to the person that I had blamed my whole life's failure on. And I went to her house and I walked in the door and she wasn't mad at me no more. I couldn't figure that out. I thought something's wrong. You know, we're the only people in the world that when we start getting better, people think there's something wrong. And I, I, I walked in and I was just befuddled. I guess you could call it the first surrender I had ever experienced in my life. I, and I asked the person I hated second to myself. I despised her. I said, do you ever get the feeling that the harder you try in life, the less you get anywhere? Just kind of like going in circles like you're on a merry-go-round going 90 miles an hour and you give your left arm to get off and watch you go around without being on it. And she says, yeah, I've been there. I, don't, I understand exactly what you mean. And she left. And I remember sitting in a recliner. I remember easing back. And a couple hours later, I got up. And I'd never gotten up like that in my life. Because my mind was as clear then 
as it is right now. I just wasn't armed with the facts about myself. I didn't know I had a disease that was progressive, fatal, and incurable, and I had no game plan whatsoever. I was just elated with the fact that I knew I didn't have to drink and get high no more. And I was just, I went totally berserk. I walked, I didn't know what the hell happened to me. It's like I've been in a closet all those years and somebody opened the door. It was a whole new world to me. And I remember walking around laughing, just laughing my head off. And I, I, I found myself doing the dishes. Dishes at somebody's house I despised. Listen to country western music I can't stand. And I'm tapping my feet doing the dishes. And I'm thinking, there's something wrong. Something's real wrong here. I felt so elated. I started laughing and I was laughing. I was going around in circles. I said, something's wrong. And I started crying because I was happy. And I started laughing because I was crying. And I looked out the back door and I saw a whole rock garden that had been there my whole life. But for the first time, I actually saw the flowers and the colors and the people back in the field. And I thought to myself, my God, where have I been? Where have I been? And this is the first, this is the second miracle that happened in my life among many. I called the person second to myself that I I just, I hated with every fiber of my being. I call her up and I says, Mom, how do you stay sober? And I remember cry, her crying on the phone and I felt like a, I was on a science fiction movie. She says, she was saying to somebody crying, she says, my God, he's one of us, you know. And <laughs> a couple years before that, my mother had given me a phone number of a fella. She says, why don't you call this guy up? Uh, well, who is he? And she said, well, his name is Mike Dries. And I said, well, does he drink? And she says, no. Well, that's a little weird. Does he, uh, does he indulge in drugs? No. I said, what the hell I want to call him for? I would have nothing to talk to him about. But that day I called my mother, the person I hated second to myself. That man was there that day. And he talked to me on the phone. He said, do you have a drinking problem? I said, I did when I sat down in a recliner a couple hours ago. Uh, he said, why don't you come down here to a meeting? And I said, well, I've been out riding horses all night. And I smell like horses and a lot of other stuff. I, I just want to go home and clean up and sleep. It was as though I've been on a long journey, living the life of a mad dog, and somebody let me off the bus. And they just kicked me out, and I go, God damn, I'm glad this is over. But I went down the next day. I went down the next day. And I remember listening to a guy give a lead, Don, Don Muchmore. And he says, uh, get a sponsor. It's the only thing I ever heard. And it just so happened the guy whose phone number my mother gave that I talked to on the phone was sitting right next to me at that meeting tonight. And the guy kept saying, get a sponsor, get a sponsor. I turned to him. I said, would you be my sponsor? I didn't know what one was, but I wanted to get one because he told me to get one. And I never met that man before. So, you know, I was sick. And he looked at me really goofy and he said, yes. And I thought he was trying to be nice. But it wasn't until a few years later that I realized that he said yes, because he wanted to ensure his own sobriety. And that's the only reason he said yes. He wanted to ensure his own sobriety out of gratitude. And I proceeded to do everything they told me not to do. Uh, they said, I uh, be a good idea, Joe, if you don't make any major decisions for the first year of sobriety. Uh, you know, like moving, getting married, uh, quitting jobs, getting another one, uh, getting emotionally involved with the opposite sex. I didn't know what emotionally involved was. You know, it had been so long since I had sex with anybody else. 
<laughs> kind of self-explanatory. Um, but I did everything they suggested I shouldn't. Um, and uh, I went out, got another, got another job, uh, started going to school. I, I, I finished the 10th grade. I quit. I thought I was dumb. I was stoned. You know, who wants to read a book when you can smoke some Acapulco gold? You know, reading takes effort. Uh, I went, I took uh, Algebra 1 and Algebra 2 and Trig. I flunked it out twice in high school before the end of the first semester, just Algebra 1. And I ended up taking 2 and 2 is 4, 4, 4, 8. General math, right? That's my level. I just want to get the hell out of here, right? I'm just going to go through the motions. Uh... A whole year of Algebra 1 and three weeks, a whole year, let me see, six weeks, a whole year Algebra 2 and six weeks, a whole year of Trig in three weeks, and I, I, I averaged 94.6. That's for people who already had it. And I thought, I got it. I finally found it. Now I know what's wrong with those people in AA. They're dumb. <laughs> I don't need to go to that AA anymore. But I remember I stopped going to meetings because I put so much energy into this school. And what happened? I got up to the last final exam and I went to the professor and I says, I can't take it. He said, why? I says, I'm an alcoholic. He said, so what? I said, so what? I got a drink. I'll see you later. And I left. I quit. I quit everything I ever started in my whole life. Not because I wanted to, but because I had to. I had a physical craving beyond my own mental control, and I thought I was a failure. No wonder I had low self-esteem. I had no idea it was uncontrollable, progressive, or fatal. Fatal was the least thing on my mind. I remember uh, after going to school, I found some love, right? Remember, if I walked down the street with this girl, people would think I'm in love, so I did that. Uh, I got my car running. I had a car that would not run, and it cost me four ninety eight to buy some plugs, and it ran. Um, oh, it's amazing! I was getting up in the world. I mean, I was I was moving, baby. I don't need you jerks and alcoholics anonymous anymore. You know, I had anesthetized myself for ten years, not by choice. And what happened? I was in Alcoholics Anonymous in my very first beginner's class. I says, "This will work for alcohol." But what about people like me who are drug addicts? Will it work for drug addicts? They said, we found people with a dual problem who are alcoholic, who had had a problem with drugs also, that the problem works just fine. And after that first meeting, a man came up to me and said, kids, you don't belong here. You belong down in Lexington with those dope addicts. And I'm, I'm grateful to that man today because he made me mad enough to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous because I like watching him get mad. You know what I mean? And I believe every alcoholic's got their own self-destruct mechanism. It's called the brain. You never notice when people come to Alcoholics Anonymous, they're so elated that they don't have to drink anymore. And all of a sudden their mind clears up and they start thinking again. And they say, well, I've got relationship problems. I've got sex problems. I've got money problems. The self-destruct met. He told me to stop. I'm on the flip side. <laughs> now, where was I at? Oh, my brain. Yeah. How can I forget that? Um, 
So I started to self-destruct, see, because I was just not drinking a day at a time. I was self-destructing. I was going to get to the point where I drank again, and eventually I did, because I did everything they suggested I shouldn't. You see, in my mind, I thought all you had to do is just don't drink and everything's going to be okay. Somewhere along the line in my life, nobody ever, ever told me that I had to be the best lover, the best worker, the best boyfriend, the best husband, the best AA member, the Messiah of Alcoholics Anonymous. I put that burden on myself. This pea brain up here started to self-destruct again. So I thought, I told my sponsor, I said, I've been in jail a couple times because of drinking, but never because of pot. He said, well, if you've uh, never had any problems with pot, I suggest you keep smoking it. So, okay. <laughs> then I end up getting drunk. It was the best, best uh, suggestion he could ever get me. He used it right out of the big book. If you're not convinced you're an alcoholic, go over and drink. Well, I thought he was being nice to me, you know. And then I thought, well, now i got a problem with drugs. So I started going to Narcotics Anonymous. And I'd go to Narcotics Anonymous and I'd get drunk. And I'd go to AA and I'd get stoned. <laughs> I'd have to say that alcohol and drugs were the greatest thing that ever happened to me up until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and after I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because if I would never would have drank the way I did or used drugs the way I did, I would not have a, a need for you at all. And it's you people that have totally helped to rearrange my life and to continue to change and rearrange it. After 89 days, I smoked some pot. I got drunk again. I used to read that story in a big book about this guy who put whiskey in his milk. And I thought, man, what a way to waste whiskey. You know, and it never occurred to me. They were talking about the insanity of the first drink. And the insanity of the first drink for this alcoholic was to smoke marijuana. That was the insanity of the first drink. It never occurred to me that I quenched my thirst with a Pepsi when I smoked dope. I always drank wine, Windsor. Uh, anything that had alcohol in it, I drank. So I came back the next time. I was sober four months. Four months this time. Back out again, just not drinking a day at a time, going to meetings. Now, don't get me wrong. These people were talking about the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. These people were talking about the 12 steps. I, I, I wasn't hearing it yet because I don't think it was time for me to hear it. I think my ego had to be deflated to the point where I was willing to just do about anything. Next time I came back, I was sober five months and went back out and got drunk. And it was in a month, out a month, in a week, out a week. I didn't know when I was going to be sober, when I was going to be drunk. I went through a care unit, or Batesville, I guess you'd call that a care unit. Uh, I went there to save my job, got drunk out of there. And I finally come back to Alcoholics Anonymous October 5th, 1978. And just last week, I celebrated six years of sobriety. I never planned on doing that. Because the list of things that were on my mind when I finally came back to Alcoholics Anonymous was the same old insanity of the alcoholic. If I get enough money in my pocket, if I can get the right old lady, that love, if I get the right job, if I can get my car running again, if I can get a good place to stay, I can get the hell out of here. Because these people are talking about things that are totally foreign to me, things I don't even feel. Jealousy and resentment and envy and guilt and remorse. You know, you would talk about it. I, I couldn't feel it. I was numb. I numbed myself too long. And I, I got to that wall at two months of sobriety, and I became a raw nerve again. I was a little bit raw before that when I first came back, because I remember coming to my first meeting again. And I want to tell you something about this fellow that, that helped me to come back. Remember I was saying I can't be picky about where I get my help from. I had a hang-up, a phobia about people who were homosexual. I don't know why. I just did. And there was a fellow named Joe. 
and Joe had been around the program 13 years. My sponsor had never been out drinking after he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. Joe said that he was sober 18 months and went back out and drank. I called somebody I didn't even trust. I said, Joe, what's it like going back to Alcoholics Anonymous? He said, you don't worry what it's like. You just go back. Because at that time in that sleeping room, I had one at Norwood. It was a little bit improved. Uh, but I, I was hiding from telephones and lights and people, uh, drinking uh, white rocket wine and TJ Swan after hours and wetting my own pants, thinking, is this really where I'm supposed to be? Is this really what I'm supposed to be doing? And what would people think? I'm not Southern Baptist. I'm not Catholic. I've never had a DWI, but I've wet my pants many a night on street corners. I qualify for Alcoholics Anonymous. I remember calling Joe up, and I don't know why, but I believed him. I believed somebody I didn't even trust. Another miracle in my life. Somebody put somebody in my life. God put somebody in my life. And I came back to A, and that very first night, I sat in the parking lot behind that school next to the Oak Street Center. And my sponsor was serious as a heart attack. But at this time, I thought he was putting me down. He said, Joe, the past year, I've watched my, wife, my, uh, my mother. She had leukemia. I watched her shrivel up, lose her hair, and die. And I wanted to drink so goddamn bad I could taste that whiskey going down. But every time I wanted to drink, you went out and got drunk. Thanks. You teach me a lot. Now, he was paying me the highest compliment another human being can pay another one. He said that I helped save his life. But at that time, through a little bit of humility and love and understanding for my fellow man, I said, you son of a bitch, I'm not teaching you anymore. <laughs> and I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous to prove that this thing would not work. That this would not work. And what I'm trying to say is, it's not important to try to understand this thing. You don't have to believe it. Just go through the motions and your life will change before your own eyes. Because I, what I did, I says, I was so mad. I, I, I was like a mad dog going down and I, I, I just couldn't ask for help. So what I was going to do, I was going to prove people wrong. And I was going to prove my sponsor wrong. And the way I was going to do that, I was going to do everything he told me to do. And when it wasn't going to work, like I knew it wasn't going to work, I could say, I told you so and go back out and drink and blame him. And I did everything he told me to do in hopes that I could prove him wrong. Here I am. It's not important to believe it. It's not important to understand it. The most important thing is to do it. I'll tell you, my concepts on living were screwed up for a long time. And they're still screwed up, but they're not as screwed up as they used to be. There's a part in the big book where it talks in the fifth chapter about how when we come to the conclusion that God is the Father and we are His children, that He is the principal and we are His agents, we start living on a different plane. We found that we had a new employer being all-powerful and all-knowing. And at that time, a fellow member of Alcoholics Anonymous got me a job. And I thought, they're right. I do have a new employer. He is all powerful. He's been sober 19 years. And I knew if I did that third step every day that I was going to have that job. All the wrong motives. Went through the motion. Stayed sober. I got to that wall at two months sober. That wall I'm talking about is that wall I had always faced every time I stopped drinking. And it was all the character defects that had just totally destroyed my life and the people around me. I says, I can't stand this no more. I said, what do I do? And I think it's the first time I ever ask anybody, what do I do? He said, Joe, write down on a piece of paper how you feel. Resentment, fear, and sex. And I did that. I did that out of desperation. 
to, and also to prove him wrong, that it wouldn't work. The second time I wrote an inventory, I did it because I heard other people doing it in a group. I wanted to fit in. The third time I did it, I, I did it because I knew I'd find relief. The big book only suggests writing a, an, a, a, one inventory, but I was sober two months, then four months, and six months, and all the stuff just keep coming back, coming back. And I had, I had to get it out, or I knew I was going to get drunk again. You know, a lot of things had changed in my life. That first job I had, the fellow that helped me get my fireman's license and engineer's license, spent 10 years in the Ohio State Penitentiary for murdering a woman. He don't even remember murdering in a blackout. Remember, I said, you can't be picky where you get your help. I can't be picky where I get my help either. I've had a lot of people put in my life like that since I've come to Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a result of these steps in Alcoholics Anonymous, what I have found is... This is where I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. And the most important thing is what I think of me, not what you think of me. And isn't what that, what I was trying to find in the bottle or the needle or the bag? Sure it was. Sure it was. The rest of the, rest of the steps to the ninth step was something to help me clear away the wreckage of my past. You know, these character defects will destroy me if I don't do something about them. Uh, at three years sober, I stole $3,000 worth of tools out at work. I got mad at somebody. I got mad at them. I'll show you. I'll screw me. I'll jeopardize my job. <laughs> we had all these tools. They had names and social security numbers on them. Brought them back. He's throwing them down to me. I'm grinding the names and numbers off. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'll get even with you. <laughs> About a month later, I couldn't handle it no more. I found out I'm not a good thief sober. I just put them all in a box. I took them back one night at 2 o'clock in the morning. I dumped them on the floor. I said, dear God, forgive me. I hope they find out whose is whose. I said, I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. I was two and a half years sober. These characters, anger was one of a big problem for me. This girl upstairs, I was working midnight shift, and she liked playing disco music when I got home for some reason. And all I could hear was the doom, 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 doom. First time I went up acting a nice guy, I said, honey, I work midnight shift. Can you turn it down a little bit? I like disco music, but all I hear is the bass. And uh, she turned it down a couple days later. It went, happened again. I went back upstairs and I says, uh, turn the goddamn music down. Went down for about a week. Start hearing the doom, doom, doom one day. <laughs> so I sat by the window. And I waited for her to leave, and I got the little tube of super glue out, and I went upstairs and glued her door shut, and there was no more doom, doom, doom. Um. <laughs> Sober, uh. One more incident of my character defects about, oh, back in April or May, I was going to demonstrate to my wife what a chef I was. I was... I was the afternoon cook on afternoon shift. I had welded up a little oven so you could open the door in a boiler and put it in, and I would grill these guys' steaks. They'd bring their steaks in. How do you want them? Medium well, rare. Um, and they had paid me for cooking steaks. But anyway, my wife had got a, a grill, and I got it out. And I said, hey, let's cook some steaks. I'll show you how it's done. So I went up and got some hickory, hickory chips and uh, all this stuff. And I'm out on the patio. The charcoal's gray. I throw the steaks on, and I'm watching this boxing match, and I'm bobbing and weaving to this boxing match. I said, yeah, yeah, hit, hit, and I looked out, and these steaks are on fire. 
oh, shit. And I got mad. Two, two, two pound steaks. And I said, you'll never burn again. Yeah. I throw both, both of these steaks down the hill. Now, you got to visualize this in your mind. There's a patio and then there's a cliff. And I thought to myself, while I'm at it, and I grabbed the whole grill and threw it down the hill. And it made me feel so good. And I'm standing there in my underwear and I turn around and the hill's on fire. And you should have seen me. I got some running shorts on. I went down the hill with this big bucket of water and I come up, my wife is nowhere around, but there's another bucket of water out on the patio. And I come back in, she says, well, Mr. Serenity, you're going to get some more steaks. And I, I went up and got a couple more steaks and we laughed about it. We laughed about it. What the hell else can you do? Right? <laughs> laughed about it. Before I had to beat myself for the next two years of sobriety for not being peaceful. Um, but it's, it's things like that that constantly remind me, just because I'm sober doesn't mean I'm good. Sobriety renders me human. The highest office in Alcoholics Anonymous. Human. And that's really what I always wanted to be. I'll talk about two more things and I'll shut my trap. They're really important to me because it totally convinced me who's running my life. Most of the time. <laughs> about three, two or three months ago, I was standing in a parking lot after the Friday night spiritual fallout group. Life wasn't going my way that night. Uh, Jeannie was there. I was talking with my sponsor. And it involves family and... Uh, I've had worse things happen to me sober. Uh, and the thing that really wasn't happening to me, it was happening to them, but things weren't going Joe's way. And I left that parking lot that night, and I thought, I'm going to quit Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not going to call my sponsor no more. I'm going to ask Mark Schickler to do the meeting on Monday night at Longview. Screw my sponsor. I'm not going back to my home group no more, and I'm not coming back to this goddamn group no more. I quit. I quit. Now, remember, I've been a quitter my whole life. And I went home that night and it was on my mind. It had been on my mind for about four hours after that. And I finally got to sleep. When I got up, it was on my mind. And I had full intention not to come back to Alcoholics Anonymous no more because things weren't going Joe's way. And I got up that morning and I got down on my knees and I said, God, help me. Do for me what I can't do for myself. And I got to work that morning and I opened the locker up and I had a clear blue. I just started laughing because I suddenly realized I can't quit no more. I can't quit. I couldn't quit even if I wanted to. As a result of 12 Steps Alcoholics Anonymous, that there was a God that loved me enough and won't let me quit. Won't let me quit no more. And that made me feel real good because I realized how much God loved me because I wanted to quit. Now I can't. My mind has changed so many times on working with other alcoholics. At first it was be, uh, I was going to be a good AA member and save all you bastards. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, you know not what you do. And I thought I had a handle on this thing. I wanted to be the Messiah in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you, that's lonely being the Messiah of Alcoholics Anonymous. Nobody wants to talk to you because you got all the answers. You know, I walk around and things are just wonderful all the time. Oh, God's just doing this for me and doing it. And get away from me. He's driving me crazy, you know. But something that has really helped me, and it's come from working with other alcoholics, sure it's ensured my sobriety, but what, what really blew me away in this past year is I suddenly realized not one person that had ever called me their sponsor ever heard a goddamn thing I'd ever said. They always heard what they thought I said. 
And you know what happened? The heat was off. I could be myself. I didn't have to worry about saying the right thing to that drunk, hoping that it'll keep him sober or get him drunk. I could be me. I could be me. As a matter of fact, it's like I just didn't give a shit no more. In AA, they call it peace of mind. Right? I was free. I could be who the hell I was, warts and all. This is the package. It might not be great, but it's better than it's ever been. And it's working with other alcoholics that showed me that. They've gotten me out of the pinches. They've kept me sober. And as a result of what has happened to me, I've now got a game plan. When all else fails, ask God to remove what's bothering me. Make amends if I have to. Talk to somebody about it and go work with other alcoholics. That works. I believe that today. It's no second guessing now. I know it in my guts. What has happened to me is I've suddenly realized that life is a quick flicker in this whole scheme of things. And I'm just a little pea in a real big pod. Things happen real fast and real quick. And if I want to enjoy life, I'm either going to have to learn how to give up myself in Alcoholics Anonymous or drink and die. And thank God I've learned how to give up myself because it set me free. I can be me now. And that's all I ever wanted to be was just me. I love you very much. And I thank you for listening to me because I really need to talk tonight. And I didn't think I was going to make it the whole time without hitting the John, but I did. I thank you very much.